Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. Welcome to our weekly macro call. We have been saying since pre-COVID, this is a macro year, and that's more true than ever. Take you through the key macro themes today. The question of will there be further stimulus? Will there be a government shutdown? The latest Brexit? A quick election update. Leading the call today will be Chris Zerwinski, our lead international analyst. Joined by Bart Oosterveld. Bart is our senior advisor and joins ACT Analytics from Moody's Sovereign Risk and the Atlantic Council. Also on the call today is John East, our head of research. Also on the call today. With that, I'd like to turn it over to Chris Rewinski to begin today's call. Thanks, David, and thanks, everybody, for joining us. I'd like to remind you, you know, it's September 17th. We've been sitting and talking about whether or not we're going to see another relief package for three or four months. It just seems like, John, the conditions for a new package are the same as they've been. There are serious structural problems in the economy, and additional funding would actually make a difference with the lives of many Americans. But it seems like the political will in Congress remains the same as it has over the last three to four months, as in the differences between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party just cannot be bridged. And that principally comes down to the amount of money that would be in a relief bill and the specific areas in which that money would go. We've seen a little bit of movement this week. I was hoping you could give us some context as to what we're all reading here on Bloomberg or seeing on Twitter. You've seen Pelosi say that she needs $2 trillion at least, and now we've finally seen the president come up from the number that Senate Republicans have pushed to around $1.5 trillion. Now, that on its face seems like a positive development. Does that move the needle at all for you? It does not. And so Speaker Pelosi wants $2.2 trillion, and that's been her floor. That is the same amount that she wanted over a month ago when talks collapsed. The White House had indicated that it was willing to accept $1.5 trillion, and that was a month ago when the talks collapsed. The one development that might be positive, but I don't think it's that positive, is that yesterday Speaker Pelosi announced that she will keep the House in session in October. But quite frankly, most of the members are probably going to be home campaigning. But at least the House is in session so that it can be called back more quickly if a deal can be had. But that was really always the case. So I see this more as a PR move than anything else. President Trump was tweeting out that he wants a deal, but he's always said he wants a deal. In fact, all of the principals say they want a deal, but they don't deliver a deal. Now, what do, what do you make of this Problem Solvers Caucus $1.5 trillion recommendation? Obviously, that is what sparked President in terms of that dollar figure, sparking to support it. Now, that is a coming together of lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, but is that also something that we should take seriously? Should we be looking at the specific provisions of that bill as a blueprint for potentially a bill in the future, even though you believe it's unlikely? I believe it's unlikely. I do commend the problem solvers for putting something out. It was 50 members of Congress. But to put that in context, a couple weeks ago when we had a rare Saturday session when 114 Democrats 
all Democrats, were pressing Pelosi to add enhanced unemployment benefits to the postal relief bill, or at least to have a separate vote on that so that something could go out. Pelosi did not listen, and instead we just got a post office bailout bill on that rare Saturday session. During remarks this week to her caucus, Speaker Pelosi, I don't know if I would characterize it as a warning, but said to those moderate members, which are a sizable part of her caucus, it's 114 members, and there are probably more members who did not sign that letter, who want something to be done. She told them that Democrats, quote, are not a cheap date. We're getting some good quotes, that's for sure. So then if it still seems like gridlock is, is the base case, if that's the base case, then are there any catalysts upcoming that could change our view? Are there any forcing deadlines? We have the continuing resolution for government funding that runs out on September 30th, but we also have some provisions for airlines that are going to be running out at the end of the month as well. Do either of those in your mind act as catalysts for negotiations or are there other things that I haven't mentioned? I don't believe so. We've blown past every deadline that we've had. The expiration of eligibility to take out a PPP loan, the expiration of enhanced unemployment benefits, I mean, deadline upon deadline. Usually, I've seen Congress negotiate right up against a deadline, but we've blown past all of them. And the suffering that people face with the expiration of unemployment benefits in particular hasn't motivated Congress to put aside its differences and come to an agreement. In fact, the one deadline that we have, the expiration of government funding on September 30th, probably inveighs against a bill because no one wants a government shutdown, especially not right before an election. And there's so few legislative days remaining that it's going to be difficult to have a deal when we're dealing with government funding. Now, there's always been the opportunity, and there still is, to attach pandemic relief to a government funding bill. But people are afraid that if they do that, we would have a government shutdown and no pandemic funding. So there's been a real reluctance to marry the two. So actually, the one deadline we have, I think, probably makes it more difficult to pass pandemic relief. That being said, if there were an agreement with the White House and Pelosi, and yes, Schumer is in these discussions, but he's been deferring to Pelosi all year. Were there to be an agreement, it could sail through Congress in a week. As of right now, we, we continue to be negative. But if you do see support from President Trump materialized further past just a tweet of support in a number of $1.5 trillion, if you actually start to see concrete negotiations there, and it looks like he's going to cut a deal with the Democrats, and then the, the Senate Republicans need to either get on board or risk you know, looking potentially stupid, that is something that we'd be looking for. However, that's a low probability scenario in our view. Until they sit so, in a room together, I don't think our view yeah. should change. It can't be invocated of support. They actually have to meet. Understood. So moving out of that then into some of the elections coverage that we've had, we've put out a number of notes this week talking about the election, talking about the potential to you know not know who the actual victor is for several weeks and months after the election. We have had more polling come out this week, John. Some of it we, we've looked at and thought there were potential signs of a tightening of the race, but then there are other polls that I look at, like Senator Collins down 12% in her race in Maine, that don't look very promising. You know, can you give us some context there as well? What are you thinking? Have, have your views changed over the last seven days? Well, no. So I don't believe Senator Collins is down 12 points. What I've seen is sort of interesting. There are some state polls that are done by state institutions. So not credible pollsters for anything outside of their state where I see a tighter race than the polls done by more established pollsters who poll many states or even our nationwide pollster. But the polling data 
except for some outlying polls in some smaller state, which I don't necessarily discount a state poll in its own state done by a college or university in that state, although it's harder to gauge their track record. But the polls are pretty universally bad for President Trump. Of course, they were also bad pretty much universally for President Trump in 2016. In one of the notes we put out this week on the election, I gave the benefit of the doubt in the electoral map on Arizona and on Florida to President Trump in part because of internal polling data, which the White House did not share. But I took them at their face and gave them Arizona. But even they would admit that they were in the margin of error there. To try to come up with a map that showed a potential way for a Trump victory to occur. It's still going to be tough. And the real nut to crack is Florida. And that's why I devoted so much of the piece to Florida, which was another state that I gave to Trump. But I also showed on the map how difficult it would be for a Trump reelect if you did not carry Florida. Yeah. So give us a, a little preview before we shift over to talk about issues across the Atlantic. Give us a, a little preview of the notes you're going to put out perhaps early next week centering on the impact and the importance of Maine. Well, so I talked with someone I trust politically very well and has very good instincts, and we were discussing this, and he put together a very credible map that shows a tie in the Electoral College. And I've played around with different tie scenarios as well. So the, the working title of our next piece is, Is the Election the Price of Lobster? And that is because Maine is one of two states, the other is Nebraska, that does not have a winner-takes-all contest for president. And so last cycle, President Trump won one of Maine's congressional districts. It's only worth one vote in the Electoral College. But it does explain that the election really could come down to that one district in Maine. And that explains why the president has been so intent on trying to reinvigorate the market for lobster because Europe had tariffs on lobster and China had tariffs on lobster. It is the rural part of Maine on the Atlantic coast, which derives a lot of its revenue from the fishing industry. I think it's going to be an interesting note. I really like the headline, provocative, and I look forward to reading that with you. Now, Bart, I wanted to bring you into, first of all, let's, let's talk about the heat map this week and Azerbaijan. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Chris. No, no lots from Azerbaijan. Um, landlocked in our heat map, we rank order 75 emerging and frontier markets relative to their risk of economic distress due to the pandemic. A lot of these countries have had assistance from the IMF by now. Azerbaijan, it stands out as performing relatively well in the region and globally. It has caseload that is just below the global average. And it's, the growth in cases in Azerbaijan is now below 6% for a few weeks. So by conventional measures. It has the pandemic under control. It also didn't need IMS assistance. It has an Azerbaijan oil exporter. It has a sovereign wealth fund. It's called the oil fund that it used to mitigate the impact of lower oil prices and the pandemic shock. So Azerbaijan in this ranking of 75 countries is doing comparatively well. Just to switch to the global picture real quick, the headlines when you get to this pandemic are always scary enough. But what I observe in the data is that the, the growth rate of the pandemic continues to decline slowly. It is now at 15%. So every two weeks, there's a 15% increase in cases. That's down from 16. And then before that, it was down 17. Before that, it was down from 18. So slowly decline. So it suggests globally that there's a peak coming in terms of the number of cases if everybody keeps their policy intact. And I think that that's something to look at. So this is in the absence of a um, 
of a treatment in the absence of a shock that you can get to avoid it. This is objectively good news. Very good. And I think that moving outside of the heat map, I'm very interested in Brexit here. I think everybody listening is also. This week was interesting with the internal market bill clearing through the, the commons. Obviously, that is not unsurprising given Boris's majority. But what are the next steps there? And how is your view on Brexit and, and what's probable? Brexit continues to be complicated as it has been for a few years now. So the the internal market bill hasn't cleared common. So it's in committee now. It'll get another reading before it goes out. So legislators voting for the government to have an ability to break the law is, is interesting. It has really raised the hairs in Brussels. There's no active negotiation now on the topics that matter. Fisheries, state aid, financial services regulation, all the stuff that needs to be sorted before Brexit. And time is running out. If we're going to have a different trade and economic relationship on January 1st, really the time for a deal is in October. What all of this says to me, because after the internal markets bill, there'll be a finance bill about financial services, is that the UK doesn't really intend to leave the EU. And there'll be a bunch of band-aids, short-term solutions uh, to keep things at their status quo, especially on fisheries, but also on financial services regulation, where it's important to remember that the EU wanted to have its own stricter regulation of financial services, not looser regulation, because it wanted London to be the gold standard. So... I think they'll punt. You know, the EU is very good at punting. The UK will have to come around to it, and uh, there'll be no Brexit. There'll be some labels put on it saying that there's a deal or it's a hard Brexit, and I don't really put a lot of faith in those labels. I think UK will live with the status quo for a few years after January 1st. What are the practical impacts of that on a global stage then? We can talk about the U.S., a potential trade agreement, but what other practical impacts are there? Yeah, I think, you know, the U.K. was quick to send Dominic Raab to Washington to talk about the strategy, and, and everybody picked up on Pelosi's remarks. I think with the U.S.-U.K., look, there's a lot of energy in Congress, no matter who gets elected for a U.K.-U.S. trade deal. And if it is at all possible, it'll happen. I don't see the U.S. as a major player in this arena. I don't think Pelosi's remarks are as relevant as they were made out to be. The only impediment would be a hard border in Ireland. Exactly. That's exactly the point. And I would say that Biden mirrored those comments from Pelosi and specifically said what you just said. And so for me, the probability of that is relatively low. And so we come to this scenario where the United States is going to be forced to negotiate a free trade agreement there. Pelosi is important in the U.S. context, but he doesn't set policy for the U.S. And that's going to be a a two-year process on a good day. The Trump administration was trying to expedite that. And we saw that there were, you know, despite the positive spin that USTR Lighthizer like to put on those negotiations, there were still difficulties. And so I, I suspect that those difficulties won't go away overnight with a Democrat in office in the United States. And the fact that they're simultaneously still negotiating with, with Europe makes it makes it very difficult. Unless you have anything else to say there, Bart, I'm going to circle over to Brian for Latin America. Brian, we've seen some interesting news this week, too, in Brazil. Notably, President Bolsonaro withdrew the Renda Brazil proposal, which was the centerpiece. At least he was marketing it as centerpiece of the social spending program for the next couple of years. It was a way to put his stamp on a Lula era program. Can you tell us about that and what are the, what are the actual impacts of withdrawing this? Well, again, first, I think it's important to recognize that the Renda Brazil program that you mentioned, Chris, is designed to 
it's kind of a successor to the emergency assistance payments that have been going out to Brazilians as a consequence of the pandemic. Bolsonaro has accrued an entirely new constituency, which have kept his approval ratings at a very good level throughout the pandemic by providing these vouchers, these monthly cash payments to poor Brazilians. So the plan that Bolsonaro and his team had was to fold those payments into the existing Lula program and continue them permanently as part of the budget. Withdrawing that proposal, the consequences of withdrawing that proposal could be as 2021 progresses a precipitous decline in President Bolsonaro's approval rating, the approval rating that enables him to move his agenda through Congress, and also in the Brazilian context of impeachment, it, it protects him to a certain degree against Congress acting on calls for his impeachment. Now, the constituency for this new payment are poor Brazilians, but also an entirely new class of Brazilians in the informal sector that had never been contemplated in any social welfare program and never had any interaction with Brazil's social welfare apparatus. So this was a group of people, 10 to 12 million, who immediately became big fans of President Bolsonaro. Withdrawing that proposal is an awkward rebuttal to this group. It's certainly going to have consequences. Now we hear coming out of Brasilia this morning and late last night that there is an effort underway to re establish the preparation of a, uh, a program that meets the needs of that constituency, those informal, poor, working Brazilians, into a social welfare program. But, uh, you know, that is in its very early and incipient stages. One, how would they do that? Where do they get the money from? And two... Well, that's the big um, uh, Bolsonaro has essentially deferred on identifying sources of funding for it, placed it in the hands of Congress, and said, just do not take money out of any other social welfare program or pension program. The idea to fund Renda Brazil was primarily from de-index, removing the indexing number of social welfare programs, which had political consequences that you can well imagine if you use the parallel of social security payments here in the United States. So he's placed the uh, onus on Congress to identify that funding. And historically in Brazil, those types of admonitions to Congress don't generally produce very good results. Yeah, that's, that seems difficult. That seems very difficult. That brings me to my next thing, right? So if you're depending upon the Congress to come up with that, it's just quite frankly, very, very unlikely to happen, particularly when you don't have an incredible level of coordination and goodwill between the principal actors, right? And so my mind, Speaker Maya and Economy Minister Gedges, that relationship is crucial for passing those and for finding funding for what is a very important program. So unless that relationship proves, I find that unlikely. You hit it right on the head. There's two other issues. First of all, the emergency payments expire at the end of December. So, you know, you're looking at a time frame, a couple more months of people receiving these payments. And then the idea was to immediately seamlessly incorporate this new program into it. Now there's going to be no seamless transition. They're going to go from something to nothing immediately. The conflict between the Speaker of the House and the Economy Minister is going to be very difficult to resolve. And, you know, this impasse will likely uh, put a nail in the coffin of this expanded program. And really, you know, the, the economy minister probably looks at this as a favorable thing because the spending associated with the expansion of the welfare program betrays the intent of his fiscal reform agenda and, you know, weakens his position, which is considered vital to the, the, yeah. the economic governance.
I think that's that's a great point and a good place for us to to conclude for the day. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.